HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, encouraging you to eat healthfully and nutritionally. Visit bobsredmill.com to learn more about their products. And use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes, danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not, because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies, but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS, combined with the other top five meat companies, exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today we're going to talk about something that I'm sure everyone would love if they had access to it, but is really something that is is quite wonderful to my liking. It's Chinese street food. And here in the U.S., we've recently begun to learn a lot more about Chinese cuisine than we had for many years, which all seemed limited to Cantonese or Hunan or Sichuan. But one style of cuisine that still remains somewhat rare, and I'll call it a cuisine, is Chinese street food. For sure, there's a lot of street food, Asian, Southeast Asian street food, and we're becoming more familiar with the night markets. But Chinese street food is really something unto itself, from my understanding, from my guest today. And in fact, my guest today will help you understand more about it. He is Howie Southworth a best-selling food author, photographer, and producer. And in 2010, he and his creative partner, Greg Matza, started China Sauce Productions um, to sort of house their collective interest in food media. There are some wonderful um, sneak previews (laughs) on Vimeo that you can uh, check out under Howie Southworth. They produced a, a web series called Sauce in Translation to highlight the surprising similarities among world cuisines and the film Mianzi, 
China Behind the Mask, among others. Most recently, they published the book, in fact, quite recently, Chinese Street Food, Small Bites, Classic Recipes, and Harrowing Tales Across the Middle Kingdom. Howie has called many destinations his home, and he and his family currently live in Barcelona, where he's engaged, he says, in some very serious food research. So joining me today from Barcelona is Howie Southworth. Welcome, Howie. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me. You are a man, I would say a man of the world, but man of many worlds, uh, learning about food and culture. You really immerse yourself wherever it is you seem to be. Tell us a little bit about your life experiences and how you came to write about Chinese street food. Well, I grew up in a household that was obsessed with food, though I didn't know it at the time as an obsession. I just thought that people cooked constantly, talked food incessantly, and debated recipes like life depended on it. So (laughs) when I moved to China to teach English, I quickly realized that I was teaching as a means to an end so I could afford to surround myself with incredible food. As to why China, that's a long story. I'll make it short. In college, I got into an intellectual battle with a professor from China. It drove me crazy enough to run off and literally figure out where this guy was coming from. So the irony, if I can, uh, of this book is that I stayed away from street food during the first few months in China out of fear of getting sick. But in a surprise twist, the one thing that took me down hard was a restaurant dish. So after a few days of being out of it, a friend of mine brought me some simple steamed buns down the street, and uh, they got me back on my feet. From then on, I broadened my scope. I dove deep into Xiao Chi or Small Eats. And then street food and I have been best friends ever since. Wow. Uh, not to leave my co-author out, speaking of friends, uh, my co-author, Greg Matza, who also grew up in a food-forward family, is my brother from another mother. So when I moved back <laughs> to the U.S. after just a year of living in China, I had to drag him over the Pacific as soon as I could. He had to get a load of this stuff, the stuff of dreams. So at this point, we've now made over 20 trips just to eat. And this book really is a decades-old love letter to China and a collection of our favorite food tales from over the years. I did see Greg Matzo um, make his comment on one of the videos saying that he'll, they'll come here just to, I come here just to eat. And I thought that was wonderful because that really was that really did show a deep love for, for the both of you for, for street food. And funny how it was vice versa that the street food healed you and the, and the restaurant dish brought you down. Exactly. That's, that's interesting. Well, in this book, you you wrote that you wanted to celebrate a culinary culture that is quickly changing, yet deeply rooted in tradition. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. Well, it goes over a little bit of history, if I can. Sure. Um, and Absolutely. The taste of the past. <laughs> um, so. One of our favorite friends to dine with is a guy named Chu Fang. He's an archaeologist by trade, but highly opinionated foodie. Well, actually, what am I saying? The Chinese were the original foodies. Anyway, uh, Chu Fang tends to regale us with stories of where foods originated, where the influence came from, interesting dish names, but I, I figure I'll get to that later. That, that's the fun part. Um, what seems to be agreed upon in food history circles that somewhere during the Song Dynasty, so about 1,000 CE, along with Renaissance in art and music and literature, came a boom in food and therefore street food. Well, according to Chu Feng, it became common to allow peasants from outside of the city walls to enter the city to set up temporary shop and sling noodles and porridge and steamed treats, etc. So very basic foods, but importantly, 
But of all these countryside family recipes that would otherwise have not been seen inside the city walls, if not for a new open door policy, which is pretty cool. So that goes back, uh, you know, uh, thousands of years or so, and it even goes back beyond that. But flash forward to today, and street food is just booming. And so along with a new, relatively new Chinese celebration of street food, uh, we took it upon ourselves to, to make it palatable to or accessible to uh, the audience in the West uh, to make it something that you can accomplish in your home kitchen and start enjoying some of the things that we don't tend to see on the traditional Chinese-American menu. All right. Well, we will get into some of those um, individual. I mean, the book is just chock full of incredible recipes. And I must say, the photographs. The photographs are mouth-watering. That's, I guess that's the, the best compliment I can give them because they did make my mouth water and make my stomach grumble the, for hunger. Um, just, just wonderful uh, descriptions of the food. How did you, so, so I did want to ask, I guess, to get it out of the way because I'm so curious, how did you manage to recreate a lot of, you know, street food, street food recipes, street food in particular is, is usually so a little bit strange, a little different than, than, than usual um, canon of recipes that we find, uh, you know, in describing different world cuisines. How did you manage to recreate a lot of these recipes? Well, like I said, this has been a, a, a two-decade uh, project. We didn't think of it as such until recently when we began to write the book. But look, we've been bringing recipes back for as long as we've been traveling to China. So we'd return to the States and throw these big parties and cook as many dishes as we could. And a lot of our recipes have been fine-tuned since the late 90s. We've got reams of notepaper from our trips and scribbled ideas and ingredients and photos and drawings and methods that we've run into, uh, you know, phone numbers of people that we met, vendors and cooks and other eaters. Between that and testing each recipe a number of times in the last two years, I, I believe we've flattened out any of the wrinkles, especially for the home kitchen. And I think the most inviting part to a Western audience is that true street foods in China are mostly cooked on a griddle, over a grill, in a steamer, or a flat pan. It's easy to replicate. Very little wok work, for example, or, or no fancy techniques. Hmm. Well, you mentioned that um, that they were little bites, small bites. Um, and what it, what is that called again in, in Chinese? Chao shu. Chao shu. And one of you you've consulted some terrific people i have to say um in china chinese columnists and and um think of jimmy he and uh bai wei um historian and and chen chen chao king yeah. uh director of a bite of china which is a wonderful um series i don't did we get it in the states i don't know i have to look and see but it's for the english speaking community but just wonderful um, descriptions of, of foods. But one thing that I th- one of them said, maybe it was Jimmy, he, he said that street food was to him more emotional it, for people. It, they, they just go because it's on their free time and they get something that they really love rather than seeking the perfect palate pleasure, you know, in the fine dining or fast food, he said, which was just to fill their belly, right? And I think that this, the whole small bites thing is, is just that it's more of a social, seems to be more of a social activity than actually food activity. But then again, I don't know. I mean, there's everything from, you know, closed stalls to quasi outdoor restaurants with tables on the street and, and um, food push carts. 
uh, it, it really runs the gamut of, of offerings in how, how, not what it is served, and certainly what's served, but how it's served as well. Uh, what do you feel the real importance is in the street food of China? Well, it really is, you hit the nail on the head in that it's an entire universe unto itself, uh, whether it's the format of dining, whether it's these little tiny plastic stools that you uh, live in fear of falling off of or breaking uh, <laughs> as a larger gentleman, uh, myself included, and, and Greg, we were always uh, bending these poor plastic stools and having to buy some more for the vendors. But nonetheless, you'll find uh, huge outdoor uh, tables, you'll, you'll even uh, find Bar stools, uh, you know, nosing up to a, a, a cart. Uh, most of it's done uh, walking. If it's a, if it's a quick pick me up thing on the way to work, you know, one of the most interesting conversations we had about this very question was with Chen Xiaocheng. Uh, uh, and just a small note: Bite of China in English is available on YouTube. Number oh, one. Okay. Number two, the original Chinese version, and I'll never understand why they changed the title. The title was A Tip of the Tongue, which I thought was brilliant. But nonetheless, Excellent. I had yeah. originally <laughs> seen it in Chinese, uh, and eventually when the English version was, was broadcast, I, I quickly showed everybody I possibly could. Anyway, this guy's a genius. We had a great opportunity to sit down with, with Chen, um, who does a masterful job at getting to the heart of Chinese cuisine. And I, I'll make that plural on purpose. Mm-hmm. We thought we were just sitting for an interview, you know, to get some of this guy's wisdom. But he had a Michelin-starred chef prepare a full-on feast of fancified street food, the most ornate and whimsical formats uh, for what is a rather humble style of food, right? So we thought we were in for a wonderful set of conversations, and we were right. So anyway, he shared with us his perspective on street food culture and what he saw as its value. He called it, and this is a quote, an archive of an era, right? right. It's an interesting uh, angle, I think. So in street food, one can see a picture of society, its trends, its inventiveness, its snapshot in time, in his opinion. So if the only glimpse one ever gets of China was a scene of people eating al fresco, he'd bet that you'd understand the pace of life. A guy slurping down a quick bowl of noodles uh, in a rush from point A to point B, the family sitting around over skewer after skewer of meat and uh, Coca-Cola are enjoying a leisurely night out. It's also a pretty clear economic indicator. These days, as you can imagine, street food's uh, doing pretty well. It's mm. uh, very, very popular. Mm-hmm. So he tells the story uh, of his young childhood. This is where it gets a little bit into, uh, like you said, the touching the heart you know, versus just something to fill the belly. He tells a story from his young childhood where his mother would ask him to run to the corner and buy some fried buns for the family. But the buns smelled so good coming out of the pan that he finished them all before getting home. <laughs> but then... As he reached his teen years and beyond, the shops all shuttered and the stalls closed at the behest of the, behest of the uh, communist movement, where individual proprietorship uh, is often seen as bourgeois. Then, in the mid-'80s, uh, street food scene slowly picked up, uh, back up after reform and opening under Doug Shopping. So in the last decade or so, bigger cities have started to regulate where stalls can open, which ones need to close. Mostly it's an effort to try and limit pollution, unsanitary practices, and so forth. Beijing, for example, has put good work into collected food halls or snack cities and nightly food fests that you mentioned a few moments ago. Still, there's other towns that remain the Wild West with makeshift kitchens abound. So through several permutations of infrastructure and format, I think Chen's got uh, the right idea. At Street Food, the world offers uh, an illustration of a moment in a society. So anywhere 
that you look at street food in China, it gives you sort of a, uh, an illustration of what's happening um, politically, socially, um, and emotionally. If you look right. at these families eating together or friends eating together, as you said, it's an entertainment option as well. All right. I was impressed um, in the videos and the photographs that I, I looked at um, in, prepare, in preparing for today that it also, it, it's amazing that it crosses um, not only age groups and who's eating the street food from the very, very, you know, young people bringing their babies, you know, with them, the families, you say families sitting around dining, and the, the difference in economic groups. You'll see, you know, guys in suits uh, slurping down noodles or a, a dish of something, and as well as, you know, just the sort of the hipster teenagers, you know, gathering around to eat the food. It really crosses all boundaries, it seems. Yeah. I mean, so, so today, like I said, street food is a big business across China, uh, particularly in bigger cities, but mid-sized cities. And when I say a mid-sized Chinese city, that's still several million people. Hmm. So there doesn't, I agree, there doesn't seem to be a strand of Chinese society that consume it uh, regularly. In a way, street food's a wonderful leveler. You know, from the tech CEO to cash-strapped students, everyone seems to enjoy a good bowl of soup or a stuffed bun of any right. sort. Right. Interesting changes are twofold to me. Number one, I say cash-strapped students, but I, what I would really mean to say is Alipay-strapped students. So paying a street vendor is quickly becoming a cashless business with stalls using QR codes for payment by smartphone apps. Huh. And, and number two, street food delivery. So oh, I don't see the appeal really. Yes, you can fulfill your midnight craving for a pot sticker with a phone app. Uh, but we've always found the street to be our favorite context in which to eat these things, and it's only getting better with our age. You're sitting on the sidewalk with a few beers, a few friends, a few laughs, maybe grabbing a little bit of this and some of that from whatever stalls are close. When it's not a convenient meal to grab on the way to the office, street food is like an entertainment option. Should we go to a movie or munch on chili peanuts and dumplings with our buddies? All right. Yeah. Well, you had mentioned that the, during the communist era, there was a, a disappearance of the street. They cleaned the streets. Um, uh, from vendors because private, as you said, capitalization, you know, that was, that was a capitalist activity to own a food stall, right? But also the whole act, of you just described, of, of the coming together, the socializing, congregating, talking about ideas, that was, I would assume, quite frowned upon as well in, in terms of um, a daily activity for people in the street. But that's my... Well, it, would all de- it would all depend on the topic of discussion, right? Probably um, so, so. Probably so. <laughs> one thing is always going to be true of China. Uh, where you see one person, you see a thousand. Uh, it is just uh, a, a sea of humanity, uh, no matter where you turn. So even, I would imagine, not living through it myself, but even the, the rather humdrum uh, communist-era cafeterias uh, were abuzz with community, but um, along the right topics of discussion and nothing uh, yeah. untoward or questionable. Right? Well, it is was someone, um, whether it was uh, you and Greg or one of the people that you, um, that you interviewed for information, it made some uh, statement about street food describing the diversity, the diversity of street food describing the three ethnically different dynasties. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, talking about uh, my conversations with uh, Chufang a few moments ago, I, I did. I started that conversation, but there's yeah. a, there's more to say about it. So, 
Um, after the Song Dynasty, which is when I said that there was this renaissance around art and music and literature and, and in fact, food. Right. Uh, but what happened after the Song Dynasty, so after uh, about 1200 uh, CE, was to me and history buffs like Tufang much more influential. Uh, as he likes to say, tongue in cheek, thank God for the barbarians. Uh, when, when the Song Dynasty fell to Kublai Khan and the Mongols, who reigned over the Yuan Dynasty, mm-hmm. all of a sudden things like wheat, dairy, and lamb, and grilling spiked in importance. So dairy, though the Chinese had developed an aversion over centuries, led to yogurts and cheeses, quick to consume, filling, and nutritious, right? And then you've got lamb increasing in popularity meant that cattle could be used more for field work and less for food. And grilling uh, was a fast way to cook while using very little food, which is always a, a challenge. This isn't to say that cooking over fire was new to China. In fact, it was thousands of years old for everybody. Uh, but during the Yuan Dynasty, it became pervasive, particularly within the street food realm. And don't get me started on wheat. Wheat changed the game completely for mm-hmm. Chinese cooking. Whereas before, it was mostly rice in the south and millet in the north. But mm-hmm. millet, uh, not very good. It doesn't make good That's noodles. It uh, well, it can. And it, it can, can but not candy, that great. But you have to do a lot to it to yeah. make it really palatable. Yeah. Anyway, that's a, that's a cooking opinion. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, you know, so uh, over the, the, the last uh, several centuries, with the ethnic Chinese Ming Dynasty taking over after the Mongols, then the Manchu from the Northeast, Qing Dynasty taking over from the Ming, that food pendulum swung back and forth. Uh, a number of times. The sheer number of preparations and diversity skyrocketed in the last... Um, give or take 500 years, Chinese cuisines that we know today, frankly, I think, paint a portrait of that history and the struggles between the ethnicities. Uh, But to be frank, by the time the Manchu uh, were in power, very little new was introduced on the scene, except perhaps uh, pickling. Pickling. Oh, pickling came that late, you think? Yeah, not that late, but uh, in in popularity, Mm. uh, they made it, uh, they made vast improvements in the processes and and the uh, pervasive saw it on the street, particularly. Interesting. Uh, there's one dish in particular that is popular in central China, uh, but migrated from the northeast, and that is a steamed bun that's then been grilled and cut open like a sandwich and filled with pickled vegetables of all sorts. Mm-hmm. And that dish, uh, to me, represents uh, two uh, outsider cuisines uh, taking over a, a spot on the Chinese menu, which is phenomenal to me. Yeah. Um, interesting, the word uh, barbarian. Um, interesting, the word Barbarian Chinese has been used to define everything for beards or hutzah, because the barbarians are the only ones who wore them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, to bake baked buns or hubing, the barbarian okay. buns, or even black pepper, barbarian pepper, because it came huh. from out west, came uh-huh. from India. And, and truth be told, however, the word barbarian or, quote, barbarian influence on food has been enormous. You know, for example, if not for the Silk Road trade, caravans, and nomadic tribes like the Uyghurs, skewered meat, pilaf-style rice dishes, uh, breads, pastries cooked in the tandoor oven, street food in China wouldn't be what we love about it today. Uh, Perhaps ironically, Chinese food just wouldn't be Chinese food without non-Chinese foods. That's interesting. uh, One last cool thing on that. Today, when you visit a city in central China like Xi'an, which is in Shaanxi province, um, which was the the ancient terminus of the, 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 the Silk Road into China, Street stalls with Arabic script are everywhere you turn. This, to me, is very important, not only for the identity of Chinese Muslims, but for a proper view of how food cultures interact. Well, that's. I wanted to talk a little bit more about migration as soon as we and and the immigrants and and their impact on the food. 
um, right after we take a, a brief break. So stay with us. That's very interesting stuff. There's an ancient Sicilian street food that is showing up more and more on appetizer plates. It's called panele. And panele, like soca, are chickpea-based, chickpea flour-based flatbreads. But panele go through a second step. The The chickpea flour is stirred and cooked briefly with water and salt, or broth if you prefer, and then poured into a pan until it firms up. Then it's cut into squares and then fried in a bit of oil until the squares puff up. Drain them on a paper towel and serve them with some creamy ricotta or other cheeses. Mm, What a great new appetizer treat. And you can find chickpea flour or garbanzo bean flour at bobsredmill.com. And don't forget to use the code TASTE25 for 25% off your order. Okay, we're back, and I am talking with Howie Southworth. He and his creative partner, Greg Matza, are the authors of Chinese Street Food, Small Bites, Classic Recipes, and Harrowing Tales Across the Middle Kingdom. I hope the harrowing tales weren't yours. Uh, Some of them were. (laughs) Oh, dear. Some of them were. Uh, well, well, there's the harrowing tale of, of the the restaurant dish that took me down. That that could be one. right. Uh, yeah. But actually, kind of related to that, uh, we were uh, several years ago. We're in Southwest China. We were driving. Well, not driving. We were being driven uh, along the border of Burma and Laos uh, and Yunnan Province in southwestern China. And um, man, we got on the road. And it was a nine hour drive along these windy, sheer cliffs. I'm going to die, grabbing the back of the seat, white-knuckle trips I've ever been on. Um, and Greg is, like, falling asleep that he's so calm. And what got me back to the living, Linda, of course, at the end of that trip, was discovering that we had bought a bag of Bautza, or steamed buns, before we started driving. Man, one bite, and I was back. <laughs> that, was, that, that was harrowing. I mean, there was, uh, you know, there were police checkpoints, and uh, there's a... That's the, the golden triangle or the, yeah. the drug trade. In that Absolutely. Part of the world that they often will stop us and check passports. Yeah, I mean, yeah. A t- it's a, yes, it is a tough, tough place for travel um, yeah. and those, for oh, those yeah. living there as well. But At times, and yeah. things have gotten uh, much better. But we, we've, you know, been approached by gangs of motorcycles that wanted to take us to tourist spots. And uh, we've seen them tussle over wanting to get the foreigners to, to hop on the back of their bikes and, and we sneak away and go find some bowl of noodles to sulk in. And, uh, uh, but some of the harrowing tales are, in fact, not our own. Some of the origin stories. Uh, and I know we'll get to naming at some point of these yeah, dishes. Yeah, it's hopefully we'll have time for that. Um, yeah. Well, you, um, you talked about um, the Uyghur population and, and, and the, you know, the caravans that would come in and that influencing it. What were some of the major um, influences that that really impacted the food that we do see in the street food? As far as well, as far as immigrants and you know the yeah. migration process. Well, it, it's it's uh, funny, not haha funny, but uh, not altogether unstrange funny to talk about uh, migration or immigration in China right. uh, in the same breath, let alone paragraph. There's just not a lot of it that, that went on after a couple of thousand years and certainly not for the last uh, couple of hundred. 
Um, and so the, the influence that you get from outside of China comes from a couple of places. Number one, uh, wars, you know, that they fought out beyond the Chinese borders or what were presumed to be the Chinese borders into, for example, the Xiaobing or a baked bun uh, was brought back from uh, basically Central Asia uh, and, the, and the steppes um, of Western Mongolia. And the wars that they had to the north brought things, like I said, like uh, introduced things like dairy and lamb and wheat, but not in a big way until the Yuan Dynasty and the Mongols uh, reigned over China. But if you're talking about uh, migration of foods, it, it, it happens to be a lot of uh, regionality, um, a lot of moving within China over the hundreds of years. Uh, does that make sense? And so it's, it's, it's more about what came from North China to South China and from East to West, less about foreign influences, or I guess at, the, at, at some point in the several thousand years of their history, uh, it was beyond borders. And so when you get to a place like Yunnan province, where it's a lot more like Southeast Asia than it is Beijing, and when you get to the street food and uh, it's so hot that nobody cooks inside, while few people cook inside. So all these diners pop up outside, and there's all these grills, because it's a nice, quick way to cook things like fish and vegetables. You literally walk up to a stand, and you point at the 20 skewers that you want them to then cook up for you, and you sit with a nice cold lager, and you eat with your friends. And that's a very different uh, style of eating than in the chilly northeast up by Russia, where, you know, large portions of the year, it's a, a, a tundra. And so there's foods that move based on interest in new recipes, and there's foods that refuse to move because the context is a little bit wrong, right? Hmm. But right. there's definitely regionality when it comes to street food, but in my personal opinion, it's a lot less than there used to be. And I say this, uh, it's much easier to move around these days, and where families typically stay close to one another, it's not uncommon to be in a large metropolis and meet people from all over China. And this also means that people move to work and stuff. Um, but these folks also come with recipes. Or if there's a large migration from uh, the countryside to a city, oftentimes cooks follow that, that horde and, and uh, sell them the food that they're used to, to eating. And China is a big foodie country, right? So they love to try new things. This also means there's a market for the variety of regional cuisines that, that come along with whether it's uh, laborers or someone who's going to work for a tech company and gets a job out of college. You know, so, for example, Shandong province-style pancakes. You can absolutely find them in, Sh uh, in Sichuan province, which is in the southwest. Guangdong or Canton-style dim sum. There's surely a steamer cart fogging up the chilly northeastern Liaoning province. Not a lot, but they are there. Now, back in the late 90s and the early aught years, I guess, if I saw red chili wontons from Sichuan province in where I used to live in northeast Liaoning province, I would have been shocked. Hmm. Now... Sichuan food in particular is super popular, and so these things are everywhere. Now, that's one example that, that says that if there's a street food that's popular in one place, it's probably popular in another place. But that's not necessarily true. I would just say that there's – I would take that with a grain of salt, the, the words um, regionality and street food, because I find the major difference between the regional street foods is more about the local palate. So if you're in Sichuan, like I said, homo spicy food, you'll find relatively incendiary versions of, say, the Xiaobing baked pancakes, mm -hmm. right? If you're in eastern Jiangsu province outside of Shanghai, it's less spicy and more sweet. If you're in northern Jilin province next to North Korea, 
less sweet and more salty. In southern Fujian province, it's less salty and much more seafood forward. Right? So, so far as things that you just don't find in one place versus another, to me, it's, it's rather odd that you don't because a lot of them are very delicious. We have the recipe in the, in the book for these sausages made out of uh, Shanxi, uh, Central Chinese-style cured beef. This thing reminds us of a New York corned beef. And that's, that's the taste that, that, that comes to mind. In fact, we have the corning recipe in the, in the book. It's not really corning. It's a, it's a wet cure. But it's pretty weird that as far as we could tell, nobody outside of Shanxi is making this delicious snack. A couple of years ago, we were in Beijing. We spotted the telltale woven basket that the sausage is actually steamed in to form the shape. And we, of course, we got very, very excited. We bought a few and got super-duper excited. And then we opened up the little basket to find a completely different animal altogether. Uh, it also wasn't very good, which is why it did, that one didn't make the book. <laughs> so it, it's it regional regional only things you just don't tend to see anymore. Um, the differences in flavor profiles you do see um, because, like I said, it's China and they're foodies. If something becomes popular in place A, eventually it's popular in yeah. place B in some format. Well, as you said, you know the the, the travel. I mean, travel modern era and travel, people going from one place to another, bringing back the taste that they liked or bringing their taste there, certainly have a lot yep. to, to do with that and to explain that. What you had, um, uh, something you had uh, read in one part of, the, of the, your introduction about, you know, the age-old traditions but and new dishes street in street food, but also some that are so old, I mean, they are timeless dishes. What what, in your opinion, um, is one of the one of these timeless dishes? One of the oldest dishes. Timeless. Hmm. Okay. Um, that was your word, not mine. <laughs> yeah. So, so written, so written records. Well, I'll start by saying, so Xiaobing. I keep bringing it up, but right. th- th- this is a Xiaobing or the oven roasted uh, filled wheat cakes. You know, it's said to have been brought back from these Western wars by a, a Han Dynasty general, which is this is two uh, hundred BCE, right? And though this was a, quote, by barbarian bun, it was and is still seen as the quintessential street food across China. Um, different regions use different flavor profiles, as I just noted, but it all has the same root. In fact, shopping is like the ancestor of every Chinese pancake, or so it might seem. Um, around the same time, though, uh, steamed breads, both filled and plain, and noodles were becoming popular. Now, it may just be that more true records were being kept and that's why all these simple street foods seem to be common. It was probably thousands of years before that someone figured out that boiling the hell out of grains makes them edible, but that's giving porridge too much credit as street food. Although yeah. that being said, we do have a wonderful uh, mushroom rice porridge in the book, so I kind of take that back. <laughs> um, as far as timeless goes, I would, I would say that the steamed bun, whether filled or plain, are the truest native form of Chinese street food. So far as uh, newer dishes or things that we're starting to see. Uh, you mentioned migration or immigration or you know, dishes coming from the outside. There's this crazy dish and crazy popular from Taiwan um, that's called Prince Potatoes uh, in English. And these are deep fried potatoes that are either wrapped in bacon uh, and covered with a cheese sauce or fried and then cut open, kind of like as we would have a baked potato, and filled with sundry items, octopus, uh, soy broth, melted cheese like Velveeta, onions, scallops, you Ooh. name it. I mean, wow. the, the, the thing, 
can become really a monster. But I was shocked that I saw it for the first time in Chengdu, the capital of Sichuan province, uh, la- uh, two summers ago. And I talked to the guy. He, was, he said, I said, are you from Taiwan? He said, no. Uh, where, did you, where did you pick this dish up? And he said, well, I, I have friends in Taiwan. I visited and I tasted this, and I thought it was so strange that it might just strike a chord in Sichuan uh, because sometimes people like strange food. And that's his quote, not mine. Um, and we, of course, tried it, and it was fine, and it was completely as expected. Uh, Deep-fried potato wrapped in uh, uh, bacon and drowned in uh, liquid cheese. Um, but I wouldn't – that's not necessarily a Chinese street food, but, yes, it was in China, and, yes, it was bought on the street. <laughs> not exactly the healthiest dish, I would imagine, but Ew. sounds delicious. Sounds delicious. Well, speaking of some of these dishes, you, um, you do include an, an interesting – uh, chapter on the naming of many of the dishes, and this is popular. I, mean, I have, I must say that I have had um, a couple other um, chefs and authors on talking about what's in a name, the names of Chinese dishes, and and not just in street food. This is in actual, you know, dishes handed down from uh, for generations. So. What's in a name? Tell me some of the stories that are behind the names of some of these dishes. You mentioned barbarian heads. Um, t- Tell us some of the more so interesting the story, ones. <laughs> so the story of Manto or, or barbarian heads is a it's a good one. So the the common agreement is that uh, there's this uh, statesman and general during the Warring States period, so just before the the Han Dynasty, um, named Zhuge Liang, and Zhuge Liang uh, coming back from battle with dozens of prisoners of war, he and his men uh, reach a raging river that they uh, think is improbable to cross. And so to ease the, the, the worries of the river gods and to calm down the waters, they decapitate all of their prisoners and toss the heads into the, the, the current, and it stops the current from being wild. Um, they decapitate all their prisoners, and they want to calm the current in the river, and they throw all the heads into the water, and it calms the wild water, and they cross the river. So next time they come across a river that is too raging to cross, they no longer have any heads to offer. And so Zhuge Liang, statesman in general and brilliant man, uh, comes up with the idea of faking out the gods by creating heads of bread filled with brains of meat. And so they make these buns, they throw them into the river, and it works. And so barbarian heads, or at the time, Yemento, were created. But the interesting part of that story is the, the heads of the brains is the fact that eventually uh, propriety caught up with uh, culinaria in China and they replaced the character uh, with one that sounds the same. And today it's sent the, the man character in Manto uh, technically just means bread. Oh. Um, so they scrapped the, the barbarian part, but they kept the word head, hmm. which was interesting. Yeah, that's a great story. <laughs> um, no, they're. they're Really colorful names. The funny yeah. part is that most of them have, have lost their literal meaning, like I just said, or their origin story is just lost on people. Well, still with a foreign, the foreign guest with some language skills, I find them nearly as entertaining as eating the food itself. Yeah, well, a lot of the other dishes that have that we don't even realize the significance of often um, that are popular here in the in the U.S. Like, I'm thinking noodle dishes that have interesting names, Dan Dan noodles or or sure. Bang Bang. Um, <laughs> so tell us about that. <laughs> so Dandan Dan noodles, uh, 
Dandan Noodles is not so fun because Dandan Noodles is just named after the stick or, or Bien Dan, the stick uh, uh, which uh, on the shoulder of a vendor, one side would carry the sauce, the other side would carry a bucket of noodles, and that's what they would walk around town using that stick to sell their food. Um, so that's the Dandan Noodles. Well, that's, see, the I, I, it doesn't have to be you know a funny story. I think that's yeah, a wonderful yeah. story because it's no, so just wonderful, yeah, so descriptive. Not as poetic as, yeah. as Bong Bong Chicken. So okay. Bong Bong Chicken actually comes from. So uh, there's this tendency in Chinese to name things, foods included, based on the noise that something makes. So, for example, duck is ya, like a quack. Uh, dog is go, like a bark. Uh, within street food, you have, uh, you know, bang bang chicken named for the sound of a wooden stick being used to break the cooked meat into portions be- before being coated in a nutty, spicy sauce. Hmm. Oh. And the other good one is uh, uh, the biang biang noodles, which is funny for a couple of reasons. So, uh, biang biang noodles, biang biang noodles, sorry, named for the thwack that the noodles make as they're being whacked against a work surface to condition the gluten strands in the noodle itself. But what's cool about that is that the, the character biang, the word biang, actually doesn't exist. Well, I guess you could say it exists today. Biang is now, uh, if it does exist, it's arguable but it doesn't, is the most complex Chinese character ever written. And in theory, it was written by a student who didn't have enough money for noodles, and the guys would come up with a character so he could put it on the sign, and the kid drew like a, like a, a you know, multi-dozen uh, radical character. Um, it's interesting to look up if you look at Google Beyond Beyond Noodles or B-I-A-N-G-B-I-A-N-G Noodles and character. Huh. It's uh, phenomenal to look at because it looks like nothing else you've ever seen except for just a huge amalgam of, of a bunch of Chinese characters together. Mm, well, so, and yeah, I, Beyond Beyond Noodles are neat. I think we've distorted them here in this country into bang bang noodles because of the, t- the table slap sound and B-I-A-N-G bang bang being pronounced bang. So I've heard it uh, referred to as bang, bang noodles. And I thought, well, that was just sort of, you know, the sound it made, right? <laughs> Slapping the yeah, table. Yeah, you know, in, in, in the U.S., uh, in my estimation anyway, there's, there's a lot of uh, very, very specific Chinese formulations that get distorted. You'll often see, like yeah. uh, like I mentioned, bang, bang chicken. Uh, you'll see bang, bang shrimp and all these. Uh, right, right. Uh, but it, they're far from... Even if they if they had the original sauce, I would be supportive. But that they they like there's chili mayo over fried shrimp, and they call it bang bang meh, whatever. Uh, well, good to know the origin. I can only good I to know the origins. Go for long, slowly. I'm trying slowly. <laughs> well, and the the one that I do love because it just conjures up this beautiful picture is eating clouds soup. That I love. Oh, swallowing clouds, yes, because yeah. it's a double entendre. Right, because it's uh, are you swallowing the clouds, or are the little clouds they're wontons, right? right? Or the little clouds swallowing a little bit of meat mm, that you then slurp from the the wontons. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So the the wonton itself is, uh, or yuntun or huntun, depending on where you are in China, it does mean swallowing clouds. Um, they are these light, fluffy things of dreams instead of these heavy, hard huge meatball inside of a noodle thing that you tend to find uh, across the U.S. Wontons are, are a study in minimalism. It is a square wrapper folded over less than a teaspoon of a meat mixture. 
it's it's almost like the little piece of meat inside the the noodle was an accident or mm-hmm. it was just it's delicate it's supposed to be this dainty little thing that just floats and if it's uh you know heavy enough it'll just sink to be light oh. well i just i wish we had more time cuz i would i would love to talk much more about a lot of the dishes that that we don't see here in the west and all i can say is buy the book because <laughs> you, you certainly have some wonderful photographs and recipes of such tantalizing tastes. It, it really is, I, I must say, was worth the decade it took or decades it took to, uh, to put this together because it's, it's a very interesting book and, and, and very useful for those of us who like to cook as well. Well, um, hopefully, and thank you for saying this. They're very kind words. Yeah. And once again, it's Howie Southworth and Greg Matza, authors of Chinese Street Food, Small Bites, Classic Recipes, and Harrowing Tales Across the Middle Kingdom. Thanks so much for joining me, Howie. It has been a real treat. And Linda, thank you for having me. This has been great. And thanks to all of you who are listening, who are listening today, and hope that you tune in again for more great shows. And you know, here at the while we're recording this, it's getting towards the end of the year, and next year will be Heritage Radio Network's tenth year. You know, we've stayed around with so many programs. We've grown to over 35 programs, and we are a member-supported network. And it's really thanks to you listeners who have kept our voices alive on the Internet. So if you're thinking about what to do with that little extra slush fund at the end of the year, why don't you consider making a donation to Heritage Radio Network? Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click the Donate button in the upper right corner. Any gift you can give will be greatly appreciated, and we hope to keep these wonderful food stories going for a long time to come. Thanks so much. This has been another Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Simplecast is a popular hosting and analytics platform that allows podcasters to easily host and publish to apps like Apple Podcasts. If you have a podcast or are looking to create your very first, check it out. Try it for free and save half off your first three months at simplecast.com forward slash heritage.